This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey everybody and welcome back. Now as I continue to explore the knowledge and wisdom of people around the world who are working to build and strengthen their communities, I've been uncovering inspiring examples of local initiatives striving for a carbon neutral future. Inspired to act by the global efforts to reduce non-renewable fuel dependence and to uncouple their essential infrastructure from fossil fuels, communities have taken it upon themselves to do their part to transition towards a sustainable future, even if governments at the national level have been lagging behind. Now, one of the more advanced of these community projects with a track record of enduring change and resilience is that of the community of Hepburnshire in Victoria, Australia, where a community partnership called Hepburn Z-Net is working to make the Hepburnshire the first net zero emission shire in Australia. And one of the people who has been instrumental in organizing community efforts to come together around the goal of net zero emissions is Taryn Lane. Taryn designed and led the Hepburnshire Z-Net project, which modeled a whole municipality 100% renewable and carbon neutral pathway. For the past decade, Taryn has also managed Hepburn Wind, the first and largest community-owned renewable energy facility in Australia. The 4.1 megawatt wind farm hosts two turbines called Gale and Gusto and produces enough clean energy to power more than 2,000 homes. She's also undertaken a Churchill scholarship looking at community energy projects around the world. Taryn is also the founding director of the Australian Wind Alliance and the Coalition for Community Energy. She's recently developed two best practice community engagement guides for large-scale renewable energy developments for both the Victorian government and the Clean Energy Council. The project is open source and a best practice approach to bottom-up transition. In this interview, we discuss a wide range of topics from the more technical side, like the breadth of factors in calculating the emissions impact of a community, the various technologies needed for a resilient system throughout the entire year, and strategic financial planning in the long term to reach goals that are out of reach at the beginning. We also dive deep into the community organization aspects, which are essential to success, like gaining the trust of local residents, bringing together people from various sectors, managing expectations, and including diverse voices in each level of decision-making. And I especially recommend sticking around to the end of the interview when Taryn gives her advice for people looking to start similar initiatives in their own communities and where they can find tools and resources to get them started. So with that said and out of the way, let's hand things over to Taryn Lane. Taryn, let's, let's start from the beginning. How did you get started to work in renewable energy, especially at a community scale? Uh, so my background is in international development. I, I would say I'm a community development practitioner rather than being an engineer or, or something similar. Uh, 
But around about 12 years ago, I was lucky enough to uh, meet the volunteer board and the founders of uh, what was to become Australia's first community-owned wind farm. So this was before the project um, was up and operating. And they, I guess, saw the need to have a staff uh, member who could play a role in regards to engaging the community, um, raising capital and uh, dealing with some of the complexities that were there in regards to opposition against renewables. You know, 12 years ago, there was, there was quite a lot of opposition in the local area uh, and to work out what our benefit sharing model might be in the community. Um, so to, to, yeah, essentially to develop something that could really support the community um, over the years. So that, that was the original uh, role way back then, about 12 years ago. And uh, yeah, I'm very uh, grateful that I'm still working uh, for my local energy cooperative. We've now been generating for 10 years, uh, generating enough power for, for around 2000 homes. And yeah, we have a, a lot of plans to sort of grow our impact and already growing our impact um, yeah, in the local area as well. That is amazing. And this has developed into a much larger project. And I'm sure you probably had an idea of the scope of in the beginning. Can you break down what Hepburn Shire ZNet is and perhaps some of the examples in how it is assisting renewable energy transitions within that community? Sure. So, um, look, I guess originally the intention was always to build a wind farm that was appropriately scaled to the local energy needs of uh, two sort of local towns that are very close to where the wind farm is located. So it was very much that sort of town scale approach. And so we were able to achieve that and to become the first example of a zero net energy village in Australia. Uh, and we still are the only operating one. But on, over the years, uh, I guess we, we talked about having a bigger ambition and reaching you know, 100% renewables across our whole Shire. And our Shire has around about 15,000 people, um, a large geographic footprint, as you know, out in Australia, there can be a lot of space and not that much population. So a fairly large geographical footprint, 15,000 people and about 6,500 homes. Um, and we're located about an hour and a half northwest of Melbourne, so very much um, in regional uh, Victoria. So, so the ambition was, okay, you know, could we go further than the village scale and look at our entire shire? And if we're going to look at, uh, you know, energy, should we also be looking at other elements such as transport, you know, waste, uh, industry and agriculture? Uh, and land use and, and look at the full um, emissions spectrum. And I was lucky enough to be awarded uh, what's called a Churchill Fellowship, a research fellowship in 2016. Uh, so I went to Europe um, with the intent to sort of look into different models of how this could be achieved. And then uh, came back and um, yeah, we were able to secure some funding to basically pilot this in the Australian context. Uh, and that occurred in 2018. And so, yeah, we, we did basically a, a very bottom-up approach to how you could do this in a place-based way and got lots of data inputs from the community, got harvested, I think, over 90 kind of project ideas from the community, and then did a lot of rigorous technical model so that we could really see the trajectory of where we are now. What happens if we just kind of go ahead as business as usual? Uh, and what happens if we, you know, really target... Um, all emission sectors and really try and make a difference um, 
so yeah, so we've been on that journey since 2019. We, we released our roadmap. Uh, so we've been kind of three years into the implementation phase. It is a, a, a 10 year plan. So we're, we're aiming to achieve uh, zero net emissions by 2030. Uh, and we have a, a range of programs and projects that we've been working on. So not, not just from the Hepburn Wind perspective, but lots of other community groups, our local council and lots of kind of regional partners that we've been uh, pulling in to, to help us um, achieve these ambitions. So I guess some examples of projects would be bulk buys. We, we do a lot of bulk, bulk purchasing. So uh, heat pump, hot water, bulk buys, uh, residential solar and battery, electric vehicle, secondhand electric vehicle bulk buys. Um, we've, we've got a project for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, uh, in, you know, energy audits. Uh, and then there's a, a bunch that kind of target some of the other sectors like agriculture, um, which are sort of more emergent. So, so that stuff is more around raising awareness. We, we have a guide, for example, for how um, farmers can reach net zero emissions on farm. And the types of programs that might might get them there. Uh, likewise, there's an emergent sort of agroforestry project that's looking at carbon sequestration and community woodlots. Um, yeah, so we're really trying to work with the community to have all these different touch points um, that are either delivering projects and programs that are reducing emissions now, or they're kind of setting up the conditions so that um, yeah we can see projects and programs into the future. And this really is a very broad scope project. And very I'd like broad. To, <laughs> I'd like to go back to the beginning here and hear a bit about how this project first got brought up to the community over a decade ago, especially mm -hmm. when you were mentioning that this is something that wasn't nearly as well known or popular at the time. And what were the key steps that got people to take action and especially start to supply funding? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, we were very lucky that our founder, uh, a man called Per Bernard, he uh, hailed from Denmark, where this model of cooperative energy ownership is, is the most common model of, of uh, you know, mid to large scale renewable energy development. So he, he knew a lot about this model and its success in the European context. And in our community, um, you know, there was a lot of I guess, uh, unease and unhappiness about uh, what sort of renewables we might be seeing in our local uh, community. And so he just started socialising the idea of, of the, the Danish uh, model and that, you know, instead of necessarily having very large projects, we could perhaps have a smaller scale project that was enough for the community and that the community could own it, operate it and benefit from it. So. Um, you know, he started really socialising that idea back in 2005 um, and it took, uh, you know, up until 2011 for the project to be built. So it was really a, a, a slow burn. You know, you also have to do all the technical studies and, and try and uh, find a suitable site as well for the wind farm. Um, but yeah, he was he was lucky to work with our landowner, Ron, who's now he's now 84. Um, back then and he you know he was he had a, a hill just about the right size for two turbines and a grid connection very close so yeah look it was uh, early on a lot of um, you know just building awareness about the type of model that it could be uh, and then uh, we were lucky to receive a, a grant from from the government to take us through the high risk development phase. And once that phase was, was sort of surpassed and the community was was really open and willing to to invest in the project, so 
we, we raised uh, just over $10 million to construct the two turbines uh, and uh, took a debt portion from our local community bank of $3 million as well. So there's sort of that added that benefit to the community bank. Um, yeah, and we, we've, you know, the entire way through, we really treated the, the wind farm as a community asset. So we have a lot of, uh, like we have little festivals out there and events. The turbines have names, the turbines have murals. <laughs> we do kind of community education out there. So it's, yeah, it's very much a, a community asset. Um, and we, you know, we really make sure that we, um, we kind of protect it as a, as a community asset as well, which can be, you know, challenging in the times of insurance and, you know, occupational health and safety issues and stuff. But we, yeah, we do very well to kind of protect it like that. Uh, and then I guess, you know, probably one of the projects that I haven't talked about under Hepburn Sednet is, is our growth plans for, for, the, for the energy cooperative. Uh, and so we actually on Tuesday received our planning permit um, to add. So we have 4.1 megawatts of wind and we've got our planning permit to add uh, seven megawatts of solar and a 10 megawatt hour battery up at the wind farm site. So yeah, that's what we've been working on a couple, for a couple of years up uh, on, our, on our hill as well. Wow, this is really starting to coalesce, it sounds like, into something that not only is reducing the metrics that you're trying to improve upon over the long term, but also sounds like it has resilience for having these various aspects uh, that builds in some redundancy and probably some protection into the larger system in case something is not working optimally or goes offline. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely, um, you know, having a battery of that scale adds a lot of grid resilience um, improvements, which is fantastic. But also, you know, we have a lot of rooftop solar in Australia. So during the middle of the day, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of voltage issues on the grid. So having, um, you know, a battery there, we're also looking at five other sites in the Shire to do community scale batteries. So aggregated batteries as a way to ensure that more people can have solar in their rooftops because we're, we're definitely having the issue now where um, we're almost at, at the threshold of rooftop solar without something like batteries to unlock more of it. Um, yeah, so, so batteries are really important. And then I guess also from a, you know, a climate change adaptation perspective, having a, a mixture of technologies is really useful uh, because, you know, in the years where there's like this year, for example, um, you know, there's been so much rain this year, uh, the wind farms, protect, uh, you know, uh, performing very well. And, and a solar farm in that context wouldn't perform as well, you know, but then in the years of drought, you would have the reverse situation. Uh, and then I, I guess just on a daily um, level as well, you know, the, the wind farm generally has much lower generation or it'll drop out between 11 and, and 3 in the middle of the day, and that's when the sun's up. So really pairing those technologies together uh, from a, yeah, from a, an output perspective, we start to just operate as a 24-hour um, power plant, even without the battery. And then you add the battery and, and you, you certainly achieve that. Wow, this is fascinating. And I've heard some different configurations of amalgamating these power grids and even things like microgrids, which we can talk about in a minute. Mm. But I'm also interested in kind of all of the options that are available for energy production at a community scale, as well as some of the services that can be done directly like cooling or heating without necessarily having to generate electricity as a medium in between. 
Yeah, like I think, um, you know, in Australia, we have a very particular thing, and particularly in regional Australia, in that um, we've got so much land space so it's it's very diff different to what a village would look like in in European context for example where where things like district heating make a lot of economic sense um we don't have the same uh yeah kind of close locate you know locality sort of villages here in that context so so heating is a challenge um but what we're starting to see is um you know electrification so a gas to electric um, transition is happening in a big way in regards to heating and cooling um, in the Australian context. So things like uh, split systems, so reverse, you know, heat and air conditioning, uh, and then hot water heat pumps are also um, becoming a big thing instead of the gas hot water. So yeah, I think I think what we're we're most likely to see on the Australian grid is really um, that electrification of of the grid uh, and for gas to play. Uh, much less of a role. And it makes sense how you've gotten to the conclusion of the pairing of solar and wind and perhaps using heat pumps for certain applications. Did you go through an evaluation process of the needs of the town as well as the potential for generation for all of these different options as well as things like geothermal and perhaps micro hydro? I've seen so many different options out there and I'm wondering how you got through that process of evaluating and eventually deciding on the ones that you chose. Uh, Absolutely. I'll um I'll send you our big technology spreadsheet after this. You'll probably <laughs> like it. But yeah, look, we we definitely looked at every single option technology-wise on the table and included technologies that were affordable now or technologies that would become more affordable over time and then kind of scheduled them into our 10-year plan. So at a time at what time will they become affordable? Okay, probably in 2025. That's when we'll start to do programs around that. So, so yeah, it's, it, it has been very focused on, on everything. Um, but I think what, what we've seen is that um, things have been moving far quicker than we have expected. So things can be unlocked, like heat pump hot water um, systems have traditionally been quite expensive, but our state government recently introduced a subsidy which created a part payment for them. And so all of a sudden it became very clear that okay, we, we weren't planning to do a heat pump or buy for a few years, but the opportunity is here now. And we can really activate our community and you know, show them how to um, take these opportunities. So, so we'll focus on that. And likewise with um, electric vehicles, we weren't planning on focusing on electric vehicles till about 2024, but then uh, we worked with a partner who was bringing secondhand fleet cars over from Japan. So instead of the price point starting at say $45,000, the price point started at $17,000. Um, yeah, so everything that we do goes through a, a full analysis um, for viability, um, feasibility, also social desirability, and then we add an added characteristic of uh, social justice, so meaning that it's got to be affordable and accessible for, for the community. So um, that's the kind of framework that we look to design programs around and, you know, what we've been able to show in the past, you know, three years in this very small regional shire is that if you make these programs accessible and affordable, then people will spend their own money to participate in them. So we've seen um, $5 million of community investment in our programs uh, since, you know, we released our, our community plan in 2019, which is significant for such a small community. Yeah, and a huge validation that people really care about what's being developed as well. Yeah, and, and I think huge trust in 
um, the community partners that are, you know, that are that are making the effort to make sure that the technology options are sound and that there's good warranties and and then providing, um, you know, those solutions to the community. Yeah, I'm glad you identified that. I mean, trust is just so important when working at a community scale for any type of project. And mm. it makes me wonder, in your experience of having done this over, you know, planning for the long term, meeting different deadlines and executing when opportunities come up and continuing along this long-term vision, have you seen a big difference in starting with really small projects and sort of building them with this larger vision or, you know, doing the groundwork and getting the buy-in for something large that gets you momentum that perhaps propels things forward faster? Do you have a preferred approach? Um it really depends on what the what, what the opportunity is in the program and project. So, for example, um, you know our, our solar and battery storage facility at the wind farm. That's a large project, and we're able to do it because we have the existing infrastructure up at the site, and we've got the internal capability to to sort of look at you know developing a program a project like that. And that's very, I guess, strategic for us. But it is it is high kind of high risk, and it is um, you know but big gains if it if it works out. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a range of things that we can do to kind of de-risk it for our cooperative, like getting a grant to do the development so that, you know, we're not putting our members' money at risk and things like that. So, so we certainly kind of, where it's, yeah, big risk, we try and um, make sure that it's not the community's risk per se. And then with um, the smaller programs, like, yeah, we, we totally have a design and pilot type approach. So, even with heat pumps, uh, you know, we, we recently ran our, our first heat pump bulk buy and, and we ran it as a pilot uh, and we really didn't know what people would think of heat pumps. Um, several years ago, there wasn't, I guess, a, a good reputation around heat pumps. They didn't perform super well in high heat or in really cold temperatures and we can have both here in different seasons. So they just didn't have a very good reputation as a robust technology, but now they've they've improved greatly and they are very sound and, um, and operate well. So we were sort of like, oh, what will people think and how will this go? So, you know, we, we just start small. We're like, okay, we wanna, we wanna try and move 30 systems. Um, we know that they're a really high quality system. We've matched up the subsidies. We've arranged, you know, a partner with an installer and, and you know, then we, we run webinars and education events and yeah, people, they, they were fully subscribed within several days. So, um, you know, I think uh, we sort of prove, okay, we can do that. So next time let's try and get, uh, you know, 60 to 70 systems in a few months later and, and just kind of scale it like that uh, and never really go like too big with those pilots, you know, just, and, 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 you know, the, the second and third rounds, but just try and do something that's really achievable in the community. Um, and then I guess in regards to the sort of broader impact, everything that we do, we do under uh, Creative Commons. So it's fully available to other communities. You know, when we're not looking to kind of take over the world, we've got a very like hyper-local, um, let's just make stuff real, let's, you know, give it a go, let's take the risk, um, yeah, kind of approach. I love that. That was one of the things I was going to ask about. It's how you came to the decision to do that and whether you've coordinated with other communities since putting out this information on the open source platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, I mean, there's lots of communities that have used outputs from, you know, Hepburn Wind as a, as a wind farm model. 
Uh, lots of communities uh, have been utilizing the ZNet kind of methodology and then just like some of the single programs that we've done, you know, like we'll often be um, the first community to kind of trial something and then other communities will, will sort of take the plunge afterwards because they can see how we how we kind of worked it out. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the community energy sector, uh, you know, we, we were the first project uh, way back when, but now there's over 130 community energy groups across Australia um, or developing their own kinds of projects. And there's a, a really good culture of sharing in the sector because we are all a little bit resource constrained. So we, you know, we try and help each other out with um, sharing our learnings and, you know, the hard lessons and those sorts of things. Well, so this has been quite successful up until this point, but I'm sure we could talk a lot about things that didn't quite go to plan and some bumps in the road. And I think it's important to talk about those to give people a realistic idea of what this process looks like uh, so they don't get derailed by the things that will inevitably come up. What have been some of the biggest challenges that have presented themselves since, well, I guess both on the technical side and on the community coordination side? Yeah, I mean, if I think back to um, the wind farm uh, development, uh, you know, trying to build a large construction project, you know, just off the end of the global economic crisis and trying to, you know, raise capital around that. The exchange rates were all over the place. Um, you know, the project was uh, more expensive than it was ever intended to be. And, um, you know, there was moments where we went to the community and said, should we just do one, <laughs> you know, uh, and the community sort of voted for, for two. Um, and, you know, likewise, once we were up and operating, uh, it was, there was a lot of opposition to renewables um, from the federal and, and state political arena. And so the market price for renewables wasn't great. And, you know, we, we didn't have a very strong income for a, for a few years there. And so we would have to go to our members and say, you know, what would you like us to do with the income? Would you like returns or would you like us to prioritise debt? Uh, and so we, we pay down our finance faster. And, and you know, in, in that context, for, for example, our members decided to accelerate our debt repayments. So instead of it taking 15 years for us to pay our loan, we, pay, we paid it down in six years. Um, so I think that dynamic of just making sure that the, the community is part of the decision-making process where they can be has always been really important to us. And likewise, when we're, you know, kind of suffering from political issues, we, we really advocate, um, you know, we don't have vested interests, we can say what we want in that space. So we, we generally kind of punch a little bit above our weight and we really bring our members with us. So if we, we want to run a political campaign, um, you know, calling out what's happening, we, we certainly do it and, and our members expect us to do that too. And then I guess on more of a technical perspective um, you know there's just the things that happen out at site and so uh, you know making sure uh, that you've got really good relationships with um, your different service providers and making sure you've got enough spare parts and um, you know that your contracts are robust it's definitely been an iterative process over the years you know we've, we've kind of moved shape quite a few times about how we do um, the technical asset management out on site. Uh, and, and really, I think the conclusion for us where we're at now is um, just really investing in our long-term relationships with our local providers so that we get, uh, you know, fast service and 
um, people care, you know, like, like we're, we're a two turbine wind farm. If there's a, a wind farm down the road that's got 100 turbines and they, you know, they, they've got so much more clout than us and we don't have permanent staff uh, out at the wind farm site to, to operate it technically. It's a remote site. So, so we really need, um, yeah, those relationships uh, for it to, to work, which is where we're at now. And that also brings me to one of the more controversial aspects, especially of sustainable energy, in that there are a lot of critiques at where materials are sourced. And just because the energy is not being generated from fossil fuels or other non-renewable sources, that doesn't necessarily make it sustainable. What is your thought on this and how does it fit into the goal towards net zero when sourcing materials as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really tricky space. I think there's a few there's a few intersections there that are really important. Um, I think, firstly, knowing what the carbon footprint is of the technology you're deploying. So, let's say for for wind farms or at least wind farms um, of our turbine vintage. Uh, I know now it's a lot quicker because the turbines are, are a lot larger. But you know, it, it was a. I think we calculated it was a seven month. Um, uh, carbon footprint payback period from when we were first generating. So, you know, understanding what the payback period is, understanding, um, you know, when you're doing tenders or uh, procurement, how to factor in ethical factors, you know, if you, if you have the opportunity to, so that you start socialising these ideas down the procurement line um, that, you know, people want high quality projects, uh, and then I think there's, you know, the bigger discussion and, and as, you know, I think we're starting to have that discussion now in Australia more broadly about, you know, where are these, um, you know, minerals and, and other inputs actually coming from and what are the conditions of those, um, those mines like? Because, you know, a, a regulation within Australia is not the same regulation for, for a mine over in Africa. And so, you know, what, what are we actually doing about that and the companies, um, which, you know, often those companies are trading in Australia and trading over there, but they, they often won't be following the same, uh, you know, a, a strong international rule across all those sites. So, you know, I think there's, there's that kind of, um, yeah, eth ethical, ethical mining conversation is, is really important. Um, and then, you know, the what happens at the end of life cycle is, is the other really big thing that, that we all need to talk about. Um, you know, I think from a wind turbine perspective, the exciting thing that's happened over the past few years, which certainly wasn't a reality 10 years ago, is the repowering space. Uh, so essentially leaving the towers on uh, and, and the foundations, but putting a new hub nacelle and blades on and, you know, giving the turbines at the end of that kind of 25, 30, 30 years, another 10 to 15 years. So certainly for us, we have asked our operation and maintenance provider uh, in the next six years to provide us with a plan for repowering and what the costs and, and benefits um, of that will be. So I think, you know, planning appropriately for things like that. Uh, so we're not just looking to kind of pull down projects completely. What, what can we actually use and retrofit and go again with, I think is a really important discussion. And then for the bits that we can't use, what are the, what's the recyclability or the reuse factor that's happening? There's, there's so many conversations in Australia at the moment um, about the, the stewardship of, of solar panels, for example, and lots of new companies starting up that can do 
like, you know, 99.9% recycling of solar panels and also of battery, you know, technologies. Um, but there's also, you know, could these solar panels have another life? Sure, they might not have, you know, a, a high capacity factor that their use and quality, you know, might have reduced a little bit, but could they possibly have another uh, life uh, either internationally, uh, you know, in, in developing countries or, you know, in uh, social housing or vulnerable households so that they, they, if they are able to be reused and certified and given a warranty and not sort of be an orphaned solar panel, well, could they have another life before they're actually pulled apart? Um, you know, we're starting to see uh, in Australia, there's, there's one brand uh, that's taking old Nissan Leaf uh, batteries from inside the electric cars and uh, aggregating them for community batteries. So giving them another life, they've got enough of a, a you know, of a, a life cycle left in them to be useful en masse. And they're not so large that it's, uh, you know, a big impost. So, you know, I think creative solutions like that, where we're looking at, at um, reuse as well as recycling and, and things like that is, is uh, it's happening. You know, the, the, there's so much discussion about the circular economy uh, and this sort of, I think, draws a lot of, of those characteristics together. Well, let's bring that back into this larger scope of this net zero ambition for, for the community and some of the things that you have learned since starting it and included in the conversation that perhaps weren't part of the initial proposal. Like you mentioned, transportation, uh, waste reduction, like you were talking about from the systems that have already been installed. Where is the conversation in your community on that front? And what are some of the initiatives that you're considering or already moving forward with? Um, yeah, look, I, th I think the really big one in our community is agriculture. So being a regional shire, um, the agriculture emissions are the largest, followed by stationary energy and then transport. So there, obviously, there's a lot happening in the stationary energy um, area already. And I think we're sort of kind of all systems attack on, on that one, but agriculture and transport uh, are the big tricky ones. Um, and, and so, you know, really uh, trying to do things on a grassroots level, like build, develop education materials and, and start the conversations uh, on a farmer to farmer level about how we're going to to get there with, you know, with the agriculture footprint and what sort of projects and, and pilot programs could be useful. Uh, so yeah, that, that's very much a kind of emergent uh, piece. And then the transport one, we're sort of, you know, definitely attacking it on the electric vehicle and the electric charging station level, but there's also so much emergence with hydrogen uh, and, you know, I guess fuel switching more broadly that could be bigger than that and community transport and safer bike lanes and e-bikes and, you know, that whole gamut. And I think that's, that's sort of the next conversations that we want to have in the community is how do we tie, you know, in, in regional Australia, the, the roads are very unsafe. So the idea that you're sort of encouraging people to ride more bikes and to, you know, have e-bikes, um, the, the roads can be very unsafe for that kind of behaviour. So how do we create more bike lanes and, and make them, you know, fit for use uh, is, is, is a big topic locally. And then I think, um, you know, more broadly, we've seen the need to, uh, so ZNet currently is, is very much a mitigation model. It's all about reducing emissions, uh, but there's the overlap of, 
climate change adaptation. So how we deal with, uh, you know, emergency, uh, you know, disaster events and what are our climate vulnerabilities. So we've had, you know, a lot of bushfires in the area and also a lot of storms as well. Um, uh, particularly the past 12 months, really big storms that have taken out, um, you know, water and power to communities for days uh, locally and have flattened big areas of the forest. So, you know, that real overlap with, with biodiversity loss. And, and so uh, what we're focused on this year is um, expanding our ZNet model to include climate change adaptation as well as the circular economy. So we can start to bring some of that um, that thriving local economy uh, piece back through and, you know, I guess more sophistication about waste streams and um, the things that you were, you were mentioning about uh, life cycle impacts of different technologies as well. So we, we're sort of working out how to build that picture um, in a way that's very place-based with those elements as well. Yeah, that's really impressive. I haven't heard of any other projects like this that have taken on the scope of considerations that you've been doing. And with your coordination and communication with other communities that are trying to do the same thing, where have been some of the sticking points or the difficulties or perhaps hurdles to get over when it comes to just such a broad consideration of all of these things and inevitably the stakeholders that are involved with making progress in these metrics? Yeah, I, I think there's so many different ways to approach it depending on what the, what the needs are of a local community. I think you know, for a community like ours, we really want the data, we want the rigorous modelling, we want to see the trajectory, we want to be able to track our progress against that traje trajectory and, um, you know, be, be kind of very active in that process. Um, but for, and I think that's possible because, you know, there there is sort of like a, you know, community sector plus the business sector plus our council, our municipality all kind of coming together and, and really trying to work on these projects. Um, but for many other communities, it can be enough to sort of focus on a couple of um, either low-hanging fruit kind of projects where it's like, okay, running a solar and battery bulb buy is going to get us a big win here. Or you know, doing engagement with our local Indigenous traditional owner group so that we, you know, encourage more care for country is going to be a big win in our community and sort of targeting these meaningful one-by-one -one projects, I think, is, is uh, a really great approach and there's been quite a few um, community groups that uh, might take some of the information that we're doing, but instead of wanting the whole thing and the rigorous modelling and the you know, the, the different kind of outputs, they're more sort of just grabbing a project and going, oh yeah, we could do something like that, but maybe, you know, change it up a little bit. Um, yeah, or, or, you know, other, other communities have just focused on, on distinct things like 100% renewables or 100% fossil free. So they're looking at, um, you know, energy plus transport. Um, yeah, so I think that there's just so many different ways to, to carve it up. And what, what you want is something that, isn't too uh, kind of, you know, pro perfect or utopian or, you know, you don't want to wait until you've got enough money so that you can do this perfect thing. Um, I think it's good to just sort of start with, with what you can and, and go from there. And it seems like there's amazing potential in posing these challenges to the community and see who has ideas or who steps forward 
to say, hey, like maybe this is one thing that I can help to affect or some industry members that have responsibility over an aspect of what you're trying to improve and divide the ownership while still including it as part of this community identity and an everybody wins kind of outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the you know, we've sort of been heads down a little bit and just trying to get projects and programs up, but, but really we're only able to have a big impact through the range of partners that are willing to work with us and, and who are willing to kind of do their bit. Um, and it's just been fantastic to see, uh, like we have our regional water authority who, you know, is really active and we have our regional greenhouse alliance um, that has, you know, been leading on a bunch of projects. And then, yeah, you know, suppliers like, uh, like the network that supports the electric vehicle charging stations, they've come on board as a partner and yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, I think it's very, having a shared vision and then just kind of step-by-step step bringing more partners on board um, so that, yeah, you're not, you're not trying to do everything yourself is, is with limited resources is, is definitely the way to go. Now, so you've worked to help to develop this best practice of community engagement guides. Let's go to this document here and could you give me a bit of an overview of some of these best practices, the ones that have been most useful in your aspect of the work? Great. So in, look, in regards to the community transition plan, I think picking up on what you were saying before about uh, that the community can often have such a breadth of ideas. Um, you know, we, we've really found that over the years. And, and one of the key components uh, to doing any project like this is really doing a review of historical actions. So I call that a context narrative where you kind of go back in time and you go, you know, so many different groups or the council or, you know, different stakeholders have had these ideas over time and they may not have been technology, technologically possible or feasible at that time, but maybe their time is now. So we did a big historical sweep of, of ideas from different reports so that also so that locally the community uh, wouldn't think that we were sort of reinventing the wheel or, you know, not remembering what, what kind of came before. So doing that historical sweep is always really useful. And then also uh, doing like a project harvesting idea, uh, a, a, a project harvesting activity for new ideas is also uh, a really useful thing to do so that then you can capture all the, all the ideas out in the community. So they're, they're two kind of key components to developing a, a community plan. In doing this carbon or this place-based carbon emissions inventory are you really like I, I see things like going ward by ward uh and including things like tourism as well this is again really broad how do you how do you put parameters on this because <laughs> they're like yeah. the, the level of detail that you can go into is almost infinite here do you decide that up front where you're going to put the limits on or is there inevitably all of these factors, even from outside, going to have to play a role in putting out a, a feasible plan in the long term? Yeah, look, in, in the Australian context, we have, uh, in regards to carbon emissions inventories, there is a, um, a platform that offers a very top-down approximation of what your carbon footprint per postcode or per kind of municipality uh, looks like. So, so that in itself is, is often enough for most communities. Um, but it's 
generally has a lot of errors in it uh, and it's not uh, sort of locally correct enough to track progress on because it, it very much is from that federal government to state government level aggregated data. So for us, and you know, this is, this is not universal, this is not what every community would want, but for us, it was really important to be able to track progress. And so as much as we could uh, harvest real data from the ground um, that was as correct as, as it could possibly be, then that's what we were seeking to do. So uh, for example, for the um, electricity data, um, so this, this is, you know, very uh, exact. We, we get, um, in Australia, we have smart meters on every house. So we get an extract literally of the smart meter data per house for our shire. And then we, we use another platform to input um, the solar generation uh, and consumption for each household as well. Um, and yeah, and so we, we sort of map that on a year by year base, uh, basis. So it's, it's very much down to that household granular level. So that's how we can represent different wards, which are the different towns in our shire. Um, other areas like transport is very hard to get ground up data. So it's, it's, it's more of an aggregated um, top-down approach with a community survey that we use to, to give a bit more granularity. Um, and then with things like uh, you know, agriculture, we were very lucky that several years ago, our municipality had done a, um, a data collection project to really look at all the different, what all the different farms were growing you know, how many apple trees and pear trees and the orchards and like really got very granular. Um, and so we, we used that in combination with the livestock registry data. So every, you know, sheep and cow has to be registered, chicken uh, has to be registered locally. So we're able to get very, very granular data on those levels. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's, it's not necessary for, for every community, but for us, particularly the electricity component, we really want to be able to track it um, year on year. Yeah. And part of this conversation, aside from just how much can be reduced as far as consumption and waste, what are some of the key interventions that you've identified that can actually add a positive impact and offset some of the things that cannot be reduced down to zero? Yeah, so already, uh, so you know, where we are, there we have a large and very beautiful forest called the Wombat Forest, uh, and it is already acting as a really significant carbon sink for the local area. So it's around 13% um, that it's offsetting already. Uh, so uh, it's about to be turned into a national park as well, which means that it can't be logged. So its land use won't, won't change over time. Uh, so, you know, expanding on, um, you know, what, what our footprint is locally in regards to, uh, you know, uh, tree planting and carbon sequestration through offsetting means, um, you know, is, is sort of one pathway. Uh, you know, soil carbon is another thing that's got a lot of traction here as well. Um, so yeah, I, I guess we we call local offsetting insetting um, because you're doing it locally. So uh, we're really trying to activate a bunch of projects that are looking at insetting in more detail and particularly really trying to support farmers. Uh, to, you know, have more biodiversity on their farm, which serves that carbon sequestration, um, 
you know, area, but also, uh, you know, enhances what's going on locally in regards to green corridors for different wildlife and things like that. So. And this has been uh, really eye-opening. I hadn't realized just how thorough this project was, was taking so many considerations uh, into the calculations and the projections out in the future. I'm wondering if you have advice for someone, perhaps even like me, who is hoping to start similar initiatives in their community. What are some first steps and where can they go to get more information that can guide them through this very complex process? I mean, I, th I think one of the earliest steps is sort of just, you know, there's what can you do at home? What can you just do with your own lifestyle at, and, and home? Um, and then what, what are some conversations you could have locally about what a shared ambition might look like? Um, and that really depends on, on where you are and, and what that context is. Um, you know, I know that, that there is a lot of free resources out there uh, through, through different you know, websites, obviously we make everything um, for us freely available on the, on the hepburnsednet.org.au site, um, but there's uh, a bunch of different uh, sites that are global, such as um, 100% RE, they have a lot of um, renewable energy transition information. Uh, then there's some great communities like uh, SAMSO over in Denmark who are doing really fantastic work and, and also have a, have a bunch of material available. Um, so, yeah, really seeking out who's doing interesting work, looking at their websites. Um, yeah, I think broadly speaking, from the community-led climate transition piece, there's so much sharing happening. So, um, yeah, there's a lot out there. Yeah, and that is really inspiring. Taryn, where can our listeners find out more about your work, the Znet program, and the resources that are being shared on the open source platforms? Yeah, so um, we also have our peak body in Australia, which is called the Coalition for Community Energy. Um, so I'm one of the founders of that, and we we have an educational wiki uh, where we where we put um, all of our you know all of the resources we can gather from around the space, um, including you know ones that we produce. Uh, so that's on c4ce.net.au. Um, so that's one site and. Otherwise, yeah, on either our Hepburn Wind or Hepburn Sednet websites. Fantastic. Well, Taryn, this <laughs> has been quite a deep dive. You responded really well to those questions. And <laughs> sorry for grilling you so much, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time here. It was wonderful to chat with you. Let's stay no, in touch. No problem. Oh, thanks a lot. So thanks once again to Taryn Lane. I'll be posting all of the links that she mentioned in the show notes for the episode on the website, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and focus of this show into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Now in the next episode in this series on building strong communities, I'll be speaking with Luby McNamara on how the teachings of permaculture can be applied outside the garden in the social sphere. One of the most essential aspects of working to build strong communities is to first do our own inner work of regeneration. From there, we can be more effective agents of positive change at a social level too. 
so you won't want to miss that episode. Be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from. And that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. Bye.